Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Discs Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm honored to have as my guest the incomparable Mark Jordan. We'll be talking music, travels, the business side of music, songwriting, producing, the ups and downs of being a career entertainer, and we'll get some other insights as well from this world-class talent. So stick around for that and for a look inside the life and career of someone who has been active and successful since the 1970s. Uh, Mark Jordan is an icon of the Canadian music scene, a prolific and enormously successful singer, songwriter, and producer who has written hit songs that include Living in Marina Del Rey, Survival, Rhythm of My Heart, and many others. His songs have been recorded by a number of well-known artists, including Diana Ross, Rod Stewart, Cher, Bette Midler, Chicago, Amanda Marshall, and Josh Groban. It's an impressive resume by any measure. So how are you doing, Mark? I'm great. Good well, to great. Talk Thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. So how's the COVID shutdown treating you? Are you staying healthy? Are you going crazy? Or what are you doing? Well, I, I mean, uh, I've, I've really uh, been uh, in isolation for about 25 years. Okay. So I, uh, things haven't changed too much for me. But my kids, uh, you know, my kids who are songwriters, uh, my daughter lived in Nashville and she's back. She came back to Toronto and Ezra, who was a in LA came back to Toronto so I got the whole family here and until things oh. get a little cooler uh yeah is that a blessing in disguise is what you're saying yeah no it's it's wonderful oh good for you well it's uh, well I must say it's it was a uh, on I think Tuesday this week, it was officially Mark Jordan day around my house. As I went through much of your catalog, <laughs> I didn't realize how prolific you've been. I mean, I was familiar with your work and then I refamiliarized myself with some stuff and then I found some new stuff too. So I, I want to do a plug early in this uh, podcast to let people know that really consistently active you've been for decades and your body of work was I was pleasantly uh, surprised, actually. I, I didn't realize the, the, the bulk and the body of your work and quality work, too. So I want to encourage people to go to markjordan.com. If you haven't listened to uh, Mark's music for a time or if you haven't revisited his catalog, I would suggest uh, that my listeners do that because uh, really, really impressive. And it seems like you're a workaholic. You you don't have any gaps in your career that I could find. Is that right? <laughs> well, I, I you know what? Dan, I love what I do, yeah. and uh, so I, I I often go into my studio before I go down for breakfast in the morning. Wow! And I, I just uh, I really can't wait to create stuff, uh, and um, and plus the fact that I'm I'm dyslexic, quite mm -hmm. severely dyslexic, and and um, so music is uh, something that I can do. Yeah, I understand it. And um, painting is something I can do, and I understand it. Yeah. And um, so I, I, I just enjoy it's, it's what I love doing, the yeah. most. Well, good. Well, that speaks about the dedication you have to your craft. I just mo most people that I speak to, they have gaps in their career. I didn't see any gaps in your career, so that really jumped out at me. I thought, well, this guy's been consistently doing quality work for decades so uh, speaks well of you and then and then i went back to your history and, and i guess your dad was your main musical influence is that yeah fair? yeah he was uh, a montreal born um, classical singer and uh, he moved to new york and uh you know he sang with big bands and orchestras in uh, around new york and 
and uh, then he was offered uh, a show when television first came to Canada, um, or, or pretty soon after that, he was he was offered a show on CBC, and he did that. So he came back to Toronto, okay, to Canada, and that's and uh, I was born in Brooklyn, but I I basically grew up in in Toronto. Yeah, and so. It's interesting because a lot of times people have an, a parent or someone in their family who's musical, but then you you have to make your own decision. So what made you decide to pursue a, a music career? Like what what was it? Was there a defining moment where you thought, hey, I, I might be able to make something out of this? Well, I, you know, I, I wasn't sure. I, I, I was thinking of acting um, and uh, but I I went to university. I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. So I, I went to a. a Brock University in St. Catharines, and we, which is right across the lake from Toronto, and and it, it, the library was at the top of a tower, and I would go up to the library every night, and I'd be doing my you know homework and essay stuff, and and I'd look up out the window, and there was Toronto shining across the lake, and I knew every one of my friends was in a band making and it, it really it got to me after i just i just bailed on on university and went back to toronto and never yeah and never looked back so you dropped out of film school to, to pursue music and then i, I see here you uh, played with bobby v oh very early on yeah yeah, yeah. was that before music before film school or after uh that was after that was after okay. and uh i joined a cover band yeah, and we played, and and uh, when Bobby V came to to up to Toronto to play the circuit up here, um, uh, we he he hired us. I don't know how. I guess through an agent. I was, I'm not really sure to this day. Oh, cool. Did you ever stay in touch with him? I guess he died in 2016, right? It, I think. Uh, yeah. Uh, gonna... Yes. He, yeah. I I a little bit. I I stayed in touch for a while and. Uh, but um, he, he was a lovely man. Yeah. And a really, he, you know, he had all these bubblegum hits, like like a rubber ball. But And take good care of my baby. We used to sing that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. But he had written some other stuff that was really good. Yeah. Really good. Not as commercial, but really quite very cool. Yeah, it must have been fortuitous for you to to play with somebody who had already had a name, right? That must have been a good in to the business for you. Yes, it was. It was it was great to talk to him and to get his insights and uh, into you know what you had to do and yeah. and we we stayed up late many nights and talked about it and and it wasn't uh, it wasn't too long after that, maybe five or six years that I that I went to L.A. And then you got a, a deal with CBS Records, I guess, in, in the early 70s, maybe 74, I think it's this yeah, Toronto, yeah, before I left, yeah. Yeah. Before I left, and um, I, but I bailed on that after a while. Yeah. Um, because they, they didn't want to do albums, they just wanted to do singles. Right. And then you decided to head to L.A., and you got a deal with Warner Brothers down there? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that, right away, and that's where you did your your album, the, the Mannequin album with uh, Marina Del Rey and, and Survival. Yeah, yeah, I did that. Uh, I did that record and also Blue Desert. Yeah, as well. You did both. So, so then you got you got to go in the studio and do Marina Del Rey, which was obviously 
very, very well-known song. Any of us that were around at that time, which I was, I mean, that was the the ultimate summer music, right? The feel-good kind of stuff. And you got to record with some real top players on that uh, album. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, well, I was, in those days, labels had staff writers. I mean, staff uh, producers. Okay. And um, Gary Katz, who was Steely Dan's producer, was a staff producer at Warner Brothers, although Steely Dan was on ABC Dunhill, I believe. Anyway, uh, so Gary heard my demos and he wanted to sign me. And uh, so they signed me and put me in the studio right away. Like I literally, I literally went, they flew me down, they picked me up in a car, drove me to the hotel and the next, you know, that was about 11 at night. And then the next morning I was in the studio wow. at the village recorder. And, and there was, you know, all the guys who later became Toto yeah. were, you know, it was Jeff Beccaro and Steve Lukather and David Page on oh. piano. And it, it was just phenomenal. It was phenomenal. <laughs> Did you, re- I, I, I can't believe it. Yeah. Did you realize what you had got yourself into at that point? Well, not not really. <laughs> it was a learning experience for me, I'll tell you that, because you know, up to that point I hadn't done much recording at all. Yeah. And uh so it was uh it was heavy duty and and but you know what? The, those guys were very very nice to me and 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 uh they were just they couldn't have been nicer and and more supportive. So I did uh so I did that record and yeah, you know, even Fagan came in and played. Oh wow! On, on yeah, on some of it, you know. So, how was the producer? And, was he was he growly or was he uh, was he good? No, oh, he was a lovely guy, Gary Katz. I I still I see him every time I'm in New York. Oh, do you? Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a lovely. Guy. Well, I mean, you you get a good uh, a good product right out of the shoot when you got guys like that in there and you got a good producer and of course the songs are great and it's 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 amazing with that feel good kind of music it's got the real sort of boz skaggs kind of toto steely day you can hear all those influences in there but um but the song like the especially marina del rey it's the feel like the melody the lyrics the instruments everything sort of came together in a magical way that every songwriter is looking for right we listen to it back and you think okay that you got some magic there well that that was the fastest song I ever wrote, and I, that was the only song I wrote when I was in California. I'd had all the other songs written. Okay. But I, when I was um, on my way to the hotel from the airport, uh, we passed a sign on the highway that said, Next Exit, Marina Del Rey. And I'd forgotten that you know, it, California was basically a Spanish colony for a long time. And, and I thought, oh, what a... What a great Marina Del Rey! What a great name that is, yeah. you know. So I, um, I, uh, I went to the hotel. I literally wrote that song in an hour. Wow, isn't that amazing? Eh? Yeah. It's a, so I was curious, how do you categorize your music too? Like, do you when when people ask you how to categorize your music, you know, is it pop? Is it adult contemporary? It's jazzy, but not jazz. And then somebody described it as a West coast sound. I guess that would be the, the Pablo Cruz, Boz Skaggs, kind of Steely Danish sort of sound. Yeah. Well, the early records were that for sure. 
But, uh, you know, left to my own devices, I'm more, you know, my I listen to as much jazz as I did the Beatles when I was growing up. Okay. You know, most kids just listen to pop music, but I... I always love jazz. My my father once told me if you want to learn how to sing a a great a song and the the key to singing a, a great song is to connect with the lyric. And he said if you want to learn, he said listen to how women approach a lyric. They 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 seem to approach it in a far more uh, um, intense way mm-hmm. or or. Con- way and uh so he said listen to nina simone listen to billy holiday listen to uh lena horn listen to you know all, all the greats and i did that yeah did that and i learned and i and i also learned um i also and and this kind of hurt me in in the pop world but i when i was young uh my dad you know he was a classical pl- player although i mean singer but he loved all kinds of music but he used to play a lot of orchestral music on the record player at home and i got real tired of that so i would hum alternate melodies over the orchestrations oh interesting and i learned to improvise that way yeah and i learned but but it kind of so so when i write I listen to the chord melody of what is the, is the backing track, and I write something contrapuntal to that, yeah. which is very, uh, uh, which is not a usual thing for, mm-hmm. for pop. So you have different melodies going on in the background, like back vocals or or an instrument playing a counterpoint sort of. Even even the the lead vocal is is different from it it it. it, it I, how do I explain it? I, I sing over the chords in a, in a more abstract way than most pop singers do. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, the reason that I was asking about categorizing your music, you know, obviously the jazz, jazz albums, like straight jazz doesn't sound, uh, doesn't sell that well. Right. I mean, if you're trying to sell jazz albums, you know, the old jazz joke, right. About the new jazz yeah. doll, you wind it up and watch it starve <laughs> because it, uh, <laughs> Because they just don't sell a lot of albums. So you can take that jazzy influence and put it into your music, which is great. It works great. But then you end up with some sort of combination of jazzy influence with classical influence, but try, still trying to write pop music. I mean, you're trying to write music that the masses are going to appreciate, right? Yeah. I mean, essentially you are. But chasing that chasing that is a very can be very uh, detrimental to your to the outcome mm-hmm. you can't chase style and you can't you, in order to connect with you can't fool people in order to connect with an audience you have to write that it has to be truthful mm-hmm. and it has to come from a very from a real place you know what yeah. i'm saying yeah I, you can't I do. make shit up. yeah fair yeah. fair point yeah so you gotta you you got to just dig into yourself and 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 write about what affects you as a human being because if if that affects you as a human being it probably affects other human beings we're we're more alike than we are different 
Yeah. Well, it's a good point. I mean, there's lots of people that write bubblegum pop and they're just staff writers and they just crank out the hits and there's lots of that stuff going on even now, right? That just, uh, yeah, just whatever, whatever problem you can put out there, just that people will, will lap it up and you can sell some, some units, then that's fine. But I I do sense some, a more ethereal tone in your music. You use lots of strings for the mood in your songs and it just creates a real strong and distinct feel, and you have some deeper lyrics and stuff too, right? You're not you're not selling bubblegum pop, obviously, but no. uh, some deep kind of thoughts, and and the mood is good too. I like the the mood that you create in your music. As I said, I was revisiting your catalog and and want to talk to you a little bit about that. But uh, just going to take a short break, and uh, we're talking we're talking to Mark Jordan. We'll be right back. You can hear music from today's guests and other Canadian musicians from the 60s to 80s every Tuesday and Thursday on Dusty Discs Radio, including one-hit wonders, regional favorites, songs from the top and bottom of the charts, TV show theme songs, commercials, and a news clip or two from back in the day. Listen online at DustyDiscsRadio.com or download the TuneIn Radio app to your tablet or smartphone. Search Dusty Discs Radio and mark it a favorite. Now let's get back to our special guest. Okay, welcome back. We're talking to Mark Jordan about songwriting and the music business and uh, how things went for him and during his uh, long and illustrious career that's still well underway. I wanted to ask you about the songwriting process. I mean, it, it's always amazed me. I've written many songs myself, and I know you, you have written so many great songs and I always wonder about the process. And I think people, you know, they listen to a song like my wife always says, well, I just know what I like and I know what I don't like. And a basic that's songwriting for her. That's it, right? Yeah. <laughs> and people like to get an idea of what happens behind the scenes. And I've I've really looked into a lot of different songwriters. Like for example, Elton John. There's a famous uh, clip of him where he's given a seminar on songwriting and said, "Oh, it's super easy. Just play some chords." He plays a two-five or a two-three-five, something like that. And then he he gets someone to bring up a textbook and he starts singing the textbook, basically. Wow. And uh, for him, that was, that was, he said, well, it's easy because he got the lyrics from Bernie Taupin and he would just sit yeah. down and just come up with a chord pattern. Um, Keith Richards talked about, you know, just different tunings on the guitar and they just go in the studio and start mouthing some stuff and come up with some riffs and, and they come up with these great songs. And, you know, Paul McCartney said he, he dreamed, let it be, had it, let it be in a dream. Then he woke up and wrote it down. Wow. So very, very odd and different approaches. And I just wondered how it works for you. Is it sort of a collective process or more of a studio process or what do you think? Well, uh, it's, it's changed a bit over the years. I used to do everything myself, but I got tired of that. And I, and I, so I started co-writing with people. Yeah. When I was in California, maybe in about 1982, I started mm-hmm. co-writing. And, um, I, you know, if you get the right co-writer, it can be very satisfying. It can be, yeah. it can be, you know, because you want someone who's, a, I mean, I was looking for someone who was a better musician than I am. I'm not a great musician, but, but uh, so I found uh, a guy and uh, John Capek initially and and he was just a very unusual player and that gave me you know when i listened to the you know you have to realize that music is is language without you don't without even singing for it melody the the chord melody it's language yeah and as is rhythm so 
when you get a track, you're working on a track with somebody, and you, you get you get you get the track, and then you, I take it home to to put a melody and lyric on it. I listen to what is what the track is saying. Do you, do you know what I mean? It, it'll already have a vibe. It'll already have have a kind of point of view because it, it has a chord melody. Every song has a essentially a chord melody. So you'll listen to it, and then you have to. So it has to adhere to that initial direction, and then you build on that. The curious part for me, though, is, you know, when you register a song with SoCan, you register the lyrics and the music. But for you, it's, it seems to be more that you have to present the song in the right way, right? You have to create a mood. So what I notice with your songs, particularly, you're trying to create a feel or a mood. And then that involves the production and the artists and the players, you know, because there's lots of great songs out there that, that kick around for a few years, but they just haven't been presented in the right way. And you may even have some songs in the can that you think are really exceptional songs, but you got to have the right person record it and you got to have the right pre- presentation of that song. Yes. Yes. No, there's no doubt about it. That That's all part of it. That's all part of it. But, 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 the it has to come from a place of truth and, and a place mm-hmm. of unity with uh, between the, the the melody, the lyric, and the and the track. It all has to be yeah. one. Yeah, and then some songs are re-recorded. Like Gordon Lightfoot recorded songs two or three times. Sometimes he'd get a different producer, different put strings in yep. there, or that sort of thing. And and uh, then you don't you don't specifically write songs for other people like for example Paul Anka talked about writing my way like he wrote that song for Frank Sinatra like he said that yeah. that song would not have been what it was if it wasn't writing it for Frank Sinatra and he used that as a as a real uh, energizer when he was writing the songs and the lyrics and everything else but you don't you don't do that you're not a staff writer or a person who writes a song for a person no and uh, my publisher understood that about me uh, right away. Yeah. So they would never ask me to, you know, if Madonna was looking for something, they would never come to Mark Jordan and say, Madonna's looking for a song. Can you write something? Cause they knew I couldn't do that. Yeah. I, I, I and, and, uh, uh, there are lots of people that can do that, but I, I, I just don't know how to yeah. do that. So what I, what I was able to do was write really, I think very good songs um, that it, and they would go into this big pile of Mark Jordan songs. And then the, the publishers uh, would present them to uh, artists, yeah. send them over and, you know, to artists that they thought could do them. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's how Rhythm Art got, got cut. Yeah, no, I I appreciate yeah. that. I mean, what you're saying, instead of just they, sort of cranking out tunes for people, because I I've have lots of friends that that's what they do too, right? They just write songs. They don't care any any inspiration, anything. But it's funny because years ago, I remember reading Wordsworth, you know, and Wordsworth was talking about poetry, and he said that poetry is the spontaneous overflow of powerful emotions. And I thought right away, well, that's music. That's what music is to me. And then and then later on, he says about the transference of that emotion through his poetry and i thought well that's music that's and and the way that you write that sort of ethereal kind of pensive thought-provoking evocative stuff is is not 
sort of sugar-coated. It's, it comes from that well sort of within us where the music is. And you go and you dig around in that well and you come up with some stuff and go, hey, look at this. Yeah, yeah. But it's, uh, but it's all, all, always, the direction is always suggested to me by, by the music, by the backtrack. Yeah. Good. Well, I was yeah, super impressed listening to your, your catalog. Really, really deep, meaningful stuff and uh, heard lots of great instrumentation in there and stuff too. So you did those two albums in LA and then what happened after that? Um, well, my deal was over and uh, then, so what did I do? Oh, I was, I starved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, for a little while. And, and I, I remember sitting in my apartment and, uh, it's a little house, little rundown house near Hollywood Bowl, and uh, I was—I had no furniture. I had a black and white TV on a cardboard box, and, and, a, and one of those plastic chaise lounges for outside. Wow! And my ass was falling through the webbing, and I thought, "I'm—I'm going to have to go back to Toronto. I—I yeah. I, I just can't see." And and just you know, as luck would have it. I, I ran into a guy named Ronnie Vance. Mm -hmm. And Ronnie Vance's brother was the guy who discovered Steely Dan in New York, Kenny Vance. Oh. And um, Ronnie was a big music guy. And he said, um, I've just been, and he was a fan because he used to come down to the sessions for Mannequin. And he knew Gary Cass from New York and all that. So he said, I've just been, uh, hired as vice president for Warner Chapel Publishing, and he said, "Do you want to? Do you want to write some songs for us?" Hmm. And I, th I thought, well, hell, I'll try it. And I, I, you know, I, it, it went on for about eighteen years. Wow, with various publishers, you know, I, yeah. I did it for a long time, but, but, um, you know, it was just that chance meeting uh, yeah. kept me uh kept and me what a what a stupid business the music business is sometimes you're down in la you make this great album you got hit songs on it you, you do another album and then and then the next thing you know you're sitting in uh at, <laughs> in your apartment going what the heck am i going to do now that just seems so yeah. bizarre it must have felt strange yeah. it was i mean it was um very lonely and it was you know You've heard the expression "the Hollywood handshake." Yeah. Well, when you when you when you ain't got a deal and when you can't, you know, um, be of any sort of positive value to someone, they 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 move on pretty yeah. quick. And it was, you know, I'll tell you another funny story. That house that I was living in, I I either Jackson Brown had lived there at some point or hmm. or his publisher had the wrong address or something but i but <laughs> the same week i got a jackson brown royalty statement in the mail and i was going off oh, geez i'd love to open this <laughs> did you open it no <laughs> I, I did not open it but i held it up yeah. to the light and i saw his yeah. statement and i went Maybe I'll tough it out for another yeah. couple of years. <laughs> yeah. Well, he <laughs> was all. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, 
the payouts can be big, right? If you get the, the big song. So you had done the album, was it Secrets in 1980? And then what was Spanish Town, 1981? What? Oh, that was with Clive Davis. Yeah. Clive signed me to a, a just a little singles deal. Yeah, it was a 45, right? Released under Arista, I think it says here. Yeah, when he was president of Arista, I met with yeah. Clive. And uh, I think he wanted me to, as a songwriter, more yeah. than an artist. But he said, yeah. And uh, so Harry Maslin, who had just produced David Bowie, I think, for Arista, uh, he produced, the, man, I haven't heard those or even, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. Spanish Town. And what other, what other song was that? I, that Spanish Town was the B side of a single, I think. Oh, okay. I can't even remember what the, yeah. what the other side was. But anyway, uh, that it was on, I had a million deals. I'll tell you, I had, I had a, um, an Arista, you know, I knew Ahmed Erdogan because uh, because uh, I, I wrote uh, for, for Manhattan Transfer. Yeah. And he wanted me to write pop songs for Manhattan Transfer. And he goes, yeah. you know, Mark, <laughs> you know, uh, enough of this jazz stuff with the Manhattan Transfer. He said, <laughs> said even, their, even their fans hate it. Yeah. You know, you gotta, they got to do some more pop stuff. It was absolute bullshit, but yeah. but uh, God bless him. He was a sweet man anyway, and I, I, I loved hanging out with those guys. But isn't, I mean, that's their motivator, right? They want to sell albums, so they they don't really, you know, they don't have any personal attachment to the songs. It's a commodity, right? It's a commodity, but but they, there were guys like Ahmet and um, Jerry Wexler. They were all gangsters, but but it, the the thing was. They were also brilliant. They also loved, they actually loved music. Yeah. And they, they understood it and they knew what was good. Yeah. And they knew what was bullshit. Yeah. But they were tough hombres. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as you well know, in the United States, I mean, business is a blood sport, right? You either yeah. you swim or you sink or swim. And, and that's pretty much the way that their attitude is from day to day. Right. So yeah. us artists and the musicians and stuff, we, we get to sort of skip along and, and dig in our musical well and do the things that we do. But they're the ones that have to to make it happen. We need to leave it here, but check out the next episode for the second half of my chat with Mark Jordan. Catch you then. 